here there be monsters. Such was the belief of early European sailors, and such was the experience of one of our own sailors. On his night shift, watching the mooring lines at 0200 hours on July 5th, the deck was quiet, and he noticed a disturbance in the water. The light shining on the mooring lines illuminated and attracted several small silvery fish, but this was different. A faint impression of a gold-colored cone about three-quarters of a meter long. It was moving, and it was moving fast. The cone abruptly changed directions and breached the surface of the sea, splitting its back end into a myriad of shiny, wriggling arms and grabbing the fish flitting in and about the lights. Then after a start, he realized there were more of them. There were more of these fast-moving, oddly-colored creatures darting in and about among the fish, and then he recognized them. Squid. Lots of squid. But something else was in the water, too. Something larger. And it was moving closer. He began to feel the hairs on the back of his neck rising as the thing swam in. It was nearly the size of a human, but appeared only as a shimmering pale shadow beneath the waves. The closer it swam, the more anxious he became, almost running down below to alert the rest of the crew to this new disturbing threat. But just before he bolted from the deck, the creature's head breached through the surface of the waves, and it swam into the light. A sea turtle. Our crewmate laughed at his own anxiety as it turned into amused delight, seeing the huge, placid animal gently swimming among the fish. There are more of them coming now, apparently attracted by the light, and they circled around our ship slowly, searching for food as we gently rocked among the waves. Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levin. What you're about to hear is a record of my experience as part of the Institute for Nautical Archaeology's expedition to excavate the Western Antalya wreck. This merchant ship sank over 4,000 years ago during the mid to late Bronze Age, while carrying cargo, likely from the island of Cyprus, to unknown ports in the northwest. Over the next two months, we'll follow these experiences as they were recorded in real time edited only for sound quality to protect the identities of participants and the location of the wreck itself. Medical Officer's Log, 0200 hours. Shortly after my crewmate's encounter with the monster, a loud crash startled half the crew awake. The crash had been followed shortly by calls for me, the doctor. That's never a good sign. In the past, this sort of call has been followed by things like brain swelling at high altitude, severe hypothermia, or difficulty breathing requiring evacuations. But here on a ship in the middle of the ocean with young healthy crewmates, and after a loud crash, the immediate assumption is trauma. Now why these things happen always in the middle of the night is beyond me. But they always seem to, and either way, it'll take us at least an hour to unmoor the ship, and several more hours of sailing through the night before reaching a port near a hospital. On board, we have limited supplies, and as you probably know, trauma is time-sensitive and can be resource-intensive, so managing severe trauma on-site is not really an option. On the other hand, most traumatic injuries are minor, and leaving the site now would be pretty disruptive to the mission, triggering a rapid and potentially risky nighttime unmooring, putting the other crew members at risk, and costing the team a lot of time and money. The good news is that most traumatic injuries are pretty self-evident, so determining if they're severe or minor is a matter of a few seconds' observation. Some might say as easy as ABC, since the first steps of trauma evaluation literally are airway, breathing, and circulation, followed by an assessment of disability, exposing the patient for a full exam, and paying attention to environmental concerns. 
There are only a few challenging injuries to triage, as minor or severe, and those are the ones that are hidden and take time to show up. So, things like head injuries. Speaking of heads, this sort of thing is what's running through mine when I climb out of my bunk and head into the main crew deck. The patient is sitting on the floor outside their own cabin, surrounded by the other crewmates. Since privacy is a concern in these cases, I'm going to use the gender-neutral term them and they to refer to this patient and assign them the name Sam. The initial ABCs are easy to assess. Sam is sitting up, looks at me when I call their name, and responds to questions. That means that Sam's airway is intact. They're breathing, and Sam's heart's beating. However, Sam does appear a little dazed and doesn't want to stand up. Sam isn't answering questions clearly until the third or fourth repetition, has a blank stare through most of the exam, and appears fixated on their left foot. So no obvious life threats, no sign of major external trauma. But they're confused. They'd been sleeping on the top bunk, and falling out of that might explain the loud crash that woke us all up. So, of course, this is one of those rare cases where trauma triage is not straightforward, and a head injury is absolutely possible. I'm able to piece together through a series of interview questions that they had attempted to climb down from the top bunk for unclear reasons, slipped from the ladder, and landed on their left side on the floor. The bunkroom ceilings are only six and a half feet high, so they could not have fallen far, but when I ask them twice if they hit their head, I get two different answers, and confusion in the setting of a possible head injury is ominous. The concern here is that if Sam has an injury to their brain, like a bleed, it may progress rapidly, causing any number of problems, ranging from loss of consciousness to seizures to compromised airway to permanent brain damage and even combativeness that could threaten the other crew members, since head trauma patients often lose impulse control and don't understand what's happening to them. These are not good outcomes, and in the ER, the exam stops here and we rush the patient to a CT scan to take a picture inside the skull. In an emergency room, we'd know in a few seconds what kind of injury we're dealing with. But I'm not in an ER. I'm on a ship, bobbing gently in the sea, and rushing means a lot more work and time than simply pushing the patient over into the next room. So certainly, no one would argue on this crew if I ordered an evacuation under these circumstances. But the risk of leaving must be weighed against the risk of a potentially devastating and or life-threatening injury. And there are other factors to consider here. First, this injury occurred just after waking from sleep, and sleep inertia, that sluggishness after just waking can be strongly disorienting, especially if you wake up in an unfamiliar space. Second, English is not Sam's primary language. Sam speaks Turkish, and while other crew members can translate, there really is a language barrier. Also, one of the expeditioners who knows Sam says that his blank stare is normal for him and that he's behaving pretty much at his baseline, even though he might be a little more confused. So, Evacuation does have risks, and will absolutely cost time and money, so leaving prematurely is not a great option, but then again, neither is delaying treatment for a severe head injury. These are the most stressful decisions to make in any medical scenario, but they're doubly complicated in the wilderness, and of course, this is happening in the first week of the expedition before I know any of these crew members well. It all comes down to the probability of a severe injury, and if that probability outweighs the risks and costs of evacuating. Fortunately, there are a few more tricks we can use to change the probability of this disease being severe. There are no signs of injury on a thorough exam. No cuts, no bruising, no abrasions, 
no deformed limbs, or really anything out of the ordinary physically. A neurological exam reveals no deficits either. Everything is moving as it should, Sam is now following commands, and after a short time, they are able to stand and walk. So clearly nothing is broken, but the confusion is a little persistent, even if it is improving, and is made slightly more ominous by Sam's sudden decision in the middle of this exam to lie down on the floor and attempt to go to sleep again. This is creepy. So I grind my knuckles into his sternum to try to wake him up. It's a painful stimulus that we use to try to jerk a patient awake if that patient seems to be altered in some way. He immediately responds. He sits up again, resumes talking, and is this time far more coherent. The confusion appears to be gone. So with that, we decided not to trigger an evacuation, and instead, I kept us on site, but planned to check on Sam every hour or so to make sure there was no worsening of this condition. We'd move them from the top bunk to a lower bunk to prevent further falls, and everybody else would go to sleep. After about half an hour, I wake Sam up. After another hour, I wake Sam up again, and it becomes pretty clear that this was the right decision. Sam is no longer confused at all and answers every question completely appropriately, complaining mostly of pain in the left shoulder and left foot. By morning, Sam is still well. I advise Sam against diving, mostly because his shoulder injury prevented him from comfortably putting on his gear, but I'm confident they will make a full recovery. As it turns out, Sam has a history of a sleep disorder, which explained the confused state, which apparently resolved when a sternal rub woke him fully up. This is one of the expedition medicine pitfalls. Not having complete medical records on all participants before the expedition can lead to unnecessary evacuations, and luckily, this time, we caught this before it became a problem. Zero seven hundred hours. Back to expedition business. I'm feeling a little tired this morning, but nothing bad enough to interfere with the dive schedule. The excavation team today exists in two ships, the Archeo, which is run by Akdenese University and crewed mainly by graduate students, and the Virazon II, which is run by the Bodrum Research Center and the Institute for Nautical Archaeology. Archeo is a converted fishing trawler that's at least 25 years old, while Virazon II we've discussed a little bit before, but it's a two-year-old purpose-built archaeological research vessel. Finding safe mooring stones has turned into the first major challenge of the team so far. Both ships, the Archeo and Virazon 2, must be close enough to the wreck to support the dive teams and ferry supplies up and down the water column. However, they must be separated enough so as not to collide with each other or the rocks and avoid the kind of collision that apparently killed the ship we're here to explore. Despite the rocky shoreline, though, the seafloor has very few rocks large enough to hold our ship securely. And this is further complicated by the fact that the nitrogen time limits any exploration to less than 15 minutes unless we want to decompress. And that's very hard to stay stable underwater in a column at the required depth without a platform like a moored ship to balance from. So that's 15 minutes to arrive at the bottom, find a rock, secure a line to it, and get back to the surface. The rocks have to be far from shore, but close to the wreck and far enough separated from each other to support both ships. All this means is that we have to return to the port town of Adrasan nearly every night until we find and secure the needed mooring stones. So, teams had been on site for a few days before my arrival, and they had all oriented to the site and begun their explorations. But since I had not, 
my first dive was a short 18 minute dive to around 20 meters just to get used to our gear and orient to the landscape underwater. We did not go to the wreck, but we did find a ton of lionfish, sea urchins, and sea stars. It was all meant to brush off the dust of not diving for a while and get a sense of how my gear interacts with the heavier steel tanks that INA uses. Also, to identify where the thermoclines or temperature boundaries are in the water. This is a, a point where colder, denser water gets trapped under warmer water and it creates a rather sudden, often drastic change in temperature so that the bathtub of 32 degrees near the surface transitioned to about 20 degrees at 13 meters. That's about 66 feet. It means I won't overheat if I wear the dry suit I brought, but that my old 3mm wetsuit is probably sufficient protection at the wreck. The other divers do report a second but less dramatic thermocline at around 40 meters or 131 feet. July 7th, 800 hours. Once we secured the mooring stones, we uncovered a new challenge, one even more intractable, flies. The flies are definitely winning. No matter what we do, they continue to evade our traps and our well-placed smacks. And for every one we kill, many rise to take that one's place. At first, they were just a nuisance. But after a few days of our sorry attempts to contain them, they've begun to fight back, and they are now biting. Yet hope is not lost. Our trip leader says he used to be well-practiced at hand-catching flies, and we are planning several hunting expeditions to the conference room today between dives armed with fly swatters and extensive training in hand catches. It'll be tough and dangerous, but the rewards are worth the trouble. 1400 hours. Our expeditions have ended in failure. The flies still hold the conference room, and morale has plummeted. We need a new strategy. I have designed some traps for the infernal creatures consisting of an inverted cone over a cup filled with a small amount of jam. I am hoping that the jam will attract the flies and the inverted cone will prevent them from flying out. But belief in this strategy is not strong. July 10th. We've settled into something approximating a routine. We're in the setup phase of the expedition, where we place safety equipment, map the site, and begin to establish what diving roles and buddies will be. Our group currently has four divers, including myself, plus another eight or so from our Turkish university counterparts. Dives are typically in teams of two or three, but at any given moment, we may have multiple teams in the water, so the days have become pretty straightforward. Put divers in the water, pull them back out, rest on the surface for five hours, helping with shipboard operations, and repeat in the afternoon. The site lies on the side of a canyon wall that falls off to depths over 80 meters down. This is deep enough that if any artifacts fell down there, there, we'd need special gas mixtures to retrieve them. The typical diving gas mixture is just compressed air that's a mixture of 21% oxygen and 79% nitrogen. But under partial pressures greater than 1.4 atmospheres, oxygen can become toxic, and that causes things like seizures, lung damage, and comas not great if you're underwater. Partial pressure is just the part of total atmospheric pressure represented by a particular gas. So for the mixture we just talked about, at one atmosphere, only 0.21 atmospheres of that pressure is from oxygen, with the rest being from the rest of the gases within the mixture. For comparison, at 80 meters, a 21% mixture gives us a partial pressure close to 1.9 atmospheres, and that's way beyond the safe limit we've been talking about. 
You can solve this problem by using gas mixtures with lower concentrations of oxygen. But making those mixtures requires special training and apparatus, and they also need different tables for decompression sickness. It's fascinating, but it's not something you can learn on the fly. So our trip leader arranged for three commercial divers trained in Trimix, which is a helium, oxygen, and nitrogen gas mixture, to survey the area with a camera. Fortunately, though, the main part of the wreck is not that deep. It lies between 40 and 55 meters, that's about 132 to 182 feet down, and it's in a much less steep part of the slope in a shallow canyon, which is well within the range of safe air mixture diving. So to recap, nitrogen makes you drunk, and oxygen can kill you. This is what makes deep diving so physiologically fascinating. So speaking of dives in narcosis, as an example of this, my first dive to the actual wreck site happened about three days ago. And I completely missed it. We swam right over a huge collection of copper ingots and other artifacts, and I saw none of it because I was way too fascinated by a large piece of blue plastic lying just off to the side of the wreck. There is nothing exciting about this piece of plastic, but my narked-out brain decided it was out of place, and that really confused me. The purpose of this particular dive was to transfer a mooring line to a better site. And once we did this, we decided to go examine the wreck and get familiar with the site there, so we moved over to it, and that's when the plastic distracted me. Since then, I've made three other dives to the site, and yes, I was able to ignore the plastic and finally see the wreck. It appears as a series of growth-encrusted pillow-shaped objects that are strewn across a shallow, sloping, sandy canyon on the steep slope of a wall. Once you see it, though, it's hard to see anything else. They're all over the place. One of the archaeologists thinks she might even have seen the edge of a large ceramic jar. Originally, I thought that we'd be digging and excavating and bringing things up from day one, but after three days of diving for me and over a week in total, we haven't done anything of the sort. As it turns out, along with any other expedition, preparation takes precedence. Up to now, it's mostly been photo mapping and planning out positions for our safety gear. For example, my second dive to the site was bringing a camera down to help map the site and identify a site for the phone booth. Now, this is not a Doctor Who-style time machine, but rather a transparent half-dome secured to two 182-kilogram, or 400-pound, steel plates. The dome will be filled with air so that it floats up from the bottom at roughly head height. And this contraption can then be used by divers on the site as an emergency air source, and also as a way to communicate and have a conversation underwater by sticking two heads into the dome and talking about something not easily communicated through hand signals. The challenge is securing something like that on a sloping plane. We found a roughly flat sand patch, and the team prior to me brought down a series of cinder blocks, which my team then attempted to arrange in a way that flattened out the sand patch enough for the phone booth to rest on it. We also secured a signal line to help subsequent teams find the sand patch and arrange some safety tanks on the site, which are basically just air tanks tied to rocks and left there for any diver needing an extra air source while underwater. After each dive, INA has a tradition of giving each diver a vitamin, which apparently in nautical archaeology speak means a cookie. 1900 hours. In other news, Time aboard the ship bears with it all the standard ship problems, like having the gray water tank back up and spill out over the floor of the living quarters. For those who are not familiar, gray water is treated sewage. Our ship has a mini sewage plant that lets us dump gray water overboard without contaminating the sea. 
The containment tank for this water backed up today and overflowed through the washing machine. The living quarters smells lovely. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It helps us reach a wider audience. We'd also love it if you would subscribe to our email list so we can update you directly when we post a new episode. Special thanks to our production team, Sultana Pefley, Jeremy Seeker, and Emily Stratton. Music is written and recorded by David Keogh. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.